we had dinner with uh, dear friends of ours la uh, Friday night, and um, I was asked a question about preaching. And I said, you know, uh, like it or love it or whichever, uh, what I'm struck by every single time I have the opportunity to do this is uh, I am the most unlikely candidate I know uh, to be able to have the privilege of doing this. So I'm grateful to uh, teach, to speak this eternal word of God. I love that I get to serve you here and serve with you here. So um, it's just a great day to be able to see what we've seen today and experience what we've experienced and then to get into uh, his word. So... How many of you love the fact that Monty and Jeff go verse, take us verse by verse and book by book through his word, right? Yeah, I, I love that too until it's my turn. So, so I, I love to comfort people and provide reassurance and, and walk them through things and story and trauma. I really do love that. And then there are those times in scripture where uh, God says, okay, that's all true. My grace, my walking with you, my shepherding of you. And I'm calling you to some things too. So I love Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It's part of the tenets of our faith. It's by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by work, so that no one can boast. And like grace, unmerited favor, God's favor put on us with nothing of our own. Wonderful. And we are called as his disciples to walk and to live in a certain way having been given that grace. And that's what we're talking about today with the end of this Sermon on the Plain, it's been called. It's almost like Jesus does a big giant so what for us as he uh, ends this message that we've come to know by that. So we've talked about in previous, Jeff and Monty have talked about in previous messages, choices. Remember Monty started out the series saying, you know, it's an upside down kingdom. And so Jesus says to them, you're gonna, which, which kingdom are you going to live in? You're going to choose the right side up kingdom of the world or are you going to live in this upside down kingdom that I'm, that I'm bringing uh, to work? It's been God's plan from all along. And then conduct. How are you going to behave? Are you going to love one another? Are you going to love your enemies? Are you going to forgive the unforgivable? Are you going to uh, judge or judge not? And so talk about, think about your conduct. So we get to the third C today. We're going to talk about a word called character. So Jesus has said, uh, what choice are you going to make and what's your conduct going to be? And today he ends the message by saying, okay, it's time to look at the character uh, from which that life springs. So let's take a look, kind of pull the camera back a little bit on uh, Luke 6 and see what, we, see what this word character is has to do with it. The word character, if you want to really impress your friends at your next dinner party, character in the Greek language, transliterated into English, put a K where the C is in English and you've got the Greek word character. And the word itself, it is an engraving tool. A character back in that day was a tool that you engraved or that you stamped something. Baker's Bible Dictionary um, expresses it this way. The character or the tool was used to give something a distinctive mark. It's the exact expression or the exact image of any person or thing, a precise reproduction in every respect. In other words, a facsimile. So character came to mean what is on the outside. The stamp on the outside looks exactly what's on the inside. So we talk about character, it's like, does the inside match the outside? The care, and, and biblically speaking, the answer is yes. The inside matches the outside. We call that integrity as well. One writer put it this way, he said, character is the display case of Christ and shows others our entire lives as his followers. So character is the display case or the trophy case of my life 
uh, in Christ. So he, Jesus ends his message, this concluding part, really with two couplets, two pairs of things. Verses 43 through 45, this is your outline. Verses 43 through 45 are two trees and two people. Verses 46 through 49 are two claims and two builders. So we'll follow his outline on this as well. Notice that verse 43 starts with the word for, and it's referring to uh, what we talked about last week with this kind of hypocritical idea of judging people for the very thing I'm judging. And Monty talked about that, that uh, hilarious thing Jesus did. He said, how in the world can you see a little tiny speck of dust in someone else's eye if you've got like a two by four sticking straight out from yours? Like, how do, you, how do you pull that off? And, you know, it's a hyperbole around that. That's crazy. And so he, he continues that idea by this word for. We could think of it like the word because. So verse 43, uh, read with me. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So Jesus is making a point in this illustration using trees and people. He's saying the nature of a tree is what dictates what you get out of the tree, the fruit it bears. We wouldn't walk up to an apple tree and demand that it throw down some plums, right? We wouldn't think of doing that because we know going to an apple tree, what are we going to get? We're going to get apples because that's the nature. That's the internal work. The internal makeup of an apple tree is to produce that kind of fruit. So we would, we would expect, well, yeah, this kind of tree gives fruit of its like, fruit of its character. And Jesus said, that's the same way of the human heart. Human heart is the same way. What is in that heart is going to be related uh, to how, how we live. And the mouth is going to be the speaker of that. He puts it really strongly, much more strongly in, uh, in Matthew, the same thought in Matthew, in chapter 12, verse 33. Listen to what Jesus says in a parallel passage. Either, he says, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its fruit. He goes on to say, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So Jesus is being very clear by saying, look, here's how this works. You need to address the character inside because the character is going to be that which produces the fruit the world sees as you call yourself my follower. And so he's saying to them, you choose, the, choose your kingdom and they pay attention to how you act living in that kingdom. And we're going to end the message by looking at the character that produces both of those. We're going to look at kind of the inside job. He uses the word treasure there in verse 45. The word treasure is where we get our word thesaurus. And the word thesaurus is actually a treasury of words. We go to the thesaurus to get more words that we need to describe something. So it's a place where good and, and precious things, a treasury is where precious things are stored, a storehouse. So figuratively, here's what Jesus is doing. He's referring to the heart as this storehouse or this uh, treasury uh, from which the mouth draws its expression. Jesus is saying, if you want to know where you're getting what you're saying, it's inside this thing called heart. And the heart Biblically speaking, it's kind of a, a, an amalgamation, a gathering point of thoughts, 
feelings, ideas, expressions, desire, longings, those kinds of things uh, are found in the heart. Uh, Paul Baker said, it is the interior motivational structure that produces behavior. The interior motivational structure that produces behavior. That's this thing called the heart. So Jesus says, here's how this works. You have a treasury of words inside of you. The character of that heart is going to have everything to do with what this external speaker speaks out of you to show where you are as, as my disciple. A few uh, months ago, my, I heard this noise. My, my son, he's uh, 23, he was up in the shower and I heard this like this speech going on up there and I thought, what is, what is happening here? So I went up there and there's this uh, external speaker sitting out on his vanity just blasting out this baseball podcast. And uh, so I asked him what it was. He said, well, yeah, that's a, that's a Bluetooth speaker. I said, of course, I knew that. I don't know what a Bluetooth is, but, but I'm 57. I use Bluetooth in a proper context and... You're welcome. So, but a Bluetooth speaker is wired into his phone somehow, and it gives expression to what that phone is playing. That's the idea of what our mouths are for, expressing the character of the inside. We have a Bluetooth connection to this heart, and we give expression of what that character is doing in that heart. And so uh, we live, you, you may have noticed, we live in a rather wordy world like the most winsome, the wisest, the strongest, the most powerful, the meanest uh, thing that people can do seem to, to kind of carry the day when it comes to speaking. And that word evil that Jesus uses in, verse, in verses 45 and 46 is really worse than it even sounds. It doesn't just mean bad character. It means words that are injurious, words that cause injury words that cut down, words that, that uh, knock down. And so our question is, is, is my character such that my words build up? Are they constructive? Do I speak the truth in love? Do I slander? Do I gossip? And am I using profanity or do I tell lies? Am I using flattery for manipulation? All those questions come about. That shows the, the character about uh, what, what we're about. How about social media? Do my social media posts exhibit a character that is rooted in the upside down kingdom of God? Or does, does it exhibit a character that says, no, I'm fully locked into how the world operates. The meanness and the profanity and the lies and the flattery and the manipulation and all the other stuff that we're very, very familiar with. And so Jesus is saying to all these people gathered there, uh, your kingdom and your conduct and now your character, your words are going to speak what this reservoir, this treasury of words has in it. That's what the external speaker is going to show. So he's calling his people uh, into living in a certain way. A theologian named Joel Gray wrote this. In Luke's world, it was pre-Freudian. A person's inside is accessible not through his or her psychology, but through his or her social interactions and words. I've given almost all of my adult life, the last 28 years, to walking with people through their story, through their feelings, through trauma, through addiction, through all kinds of things for these 28 years. And I believe there's incredible value in processing feelings and the cathartic effect of speaking out loud what's going on and, and having new thoughts put in their place and processing these things. Incredibly, incredibly important work. And what can happen is... This Freudian idea, Sigmund Freud 
He was a little nutty, but he was also a pioneer in one thing. Here's what he said. He said, listen, we are so complex as beings. It's impossible that, that we're only made of what you can see above the waterline like an iceberg. Freud was the first one to at least systematize this idea that said there's more under the water than there is above the water. There's more internal than we see external. There's more going on in there. Now, his conclusions were a little off at times, way off at times, but the idea was true. Like we are fearfully, wonderfully made. We are complex beings, but here's what can happen. What can easily happen is whether it's psychology or a cup of coffee with a friend over Panera Bread, whatever setting it may be, we can be guilty of settling for explanations or settling for insights or settling for blame. And true healing, as Jesus is intimating here, true healing takes the idea that Freud stumbled on, the tr God's truth that Freud stumbled on and says, yes, address the internal world, then walk in the change then walk in the obedience to his word. And so, so Green is saying it was pre-Freudian, which means the way people knew who I was, who I truly followed, was what they saw on my outsides and what I said. And we know now, maybe at a deeper level, at least with different words, there's a whole lot going on under the hood that needs to be addressed. And as that's being addressed, we're called to walk more and more and more deeply in that healing, in obedience. So this is time for a, for a, uh, a real-life commercial. Here's a commercial. At 7 o'clock on Tuesday nights, right here in this room, a little over 48 hours from now, there's going to be a gathering of people in a group called Regeneration that does exactly what I've just described. Here at our church, available to our community and to all of us, don't bring anything but you and your story uh, to that. And we, we desire here... Fellowship Bible Church, for people to have a place to come do what's being described here. Take a look in here and see what's going on and share that with other people. And as you have healing on this inside, then you walk deeply in obedience as a process of, of having to do this. So regeneration is a place to come, pay attention to that regenerate heart and then live in such a way that shows, as Joel Green said, in a pre-Freudian way, this reservoir that we're drawing from to live. So Paul said, uh, Paul, I don't know why I think Paul wrote the whole Bible. Jesus, you know, <laughs> Jesus um, is saying to people here, be sure you are paying attention to what is going on in there because that external speaker is saying something about what's on the inside. It's called character. It's the engraving we wear here to show what's in here. So Jesus comes down to a really a, a kind of a, a, a scary question uh, in verse uh, 46. Here's the question. You parents and you parents that used to be children, that would be you know, most of us, uh, have heard this. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? What a question. Can you imagine being there like, not what I tell you? And he's just talked about this whole idea around, you know, what's inside is, is what comes out. And Sheila and I were in, when I was in seminary, and Sheila and I, let's just say we weren't like awash in cash. Um, it means we were poor. And uh, we would go to these get-togethers where we would kind of pool, you know, kind of pool food and I, I, you all know that the marriage supper of the lamb is going to be fried catfish and all the fixings. We know that clearly, scripture. And, uh, but one of the sides is going to be uh, egg rolls with a whole lot of mustard. I, that is one of the greatest things. If you haven't tried that, go home and try it. Uh, egg rolls of mustard. So I saw on the table at this party 
uh, this bowl of uh, this plate of egg rolls, this big bowl of what I believe to be mustard. Uh, so I got out of that bowl, put all this mustard on a plate and ran that egg roll through it. And it was apparently hydrochloric acid, Drano, something. Uh, it was not yellow mustard. <laughs> like I went unconscious, it's 1991. I went unconscious. I came to about a week ago uh, from that thing. But whatever that was, no matter how much I wished for it to be yellow mustard, it wasn't. I know not what it was. It wasn't mustard. So the idea is like what's in the container is what you're going to get out. It didn't matter how much I wanted it to be yellow mustard, how much I wished it was, how much I was praying to God as I've collapsed that it wasn't. It didn't matter. What's in there is what's coming out. So Jesus just made that point like, hey, what is inside of you out of the abundance of that reservoir, that treasury of words? Your speaker is going to speak what's in there. And then he's almost like he, he says, that speaker speaks what's there. And then he turns to them and asks them that question. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you to do? He makes it, um, uh, we, we look at uh, going back in chapter 6 a little earlier in chapter, uh, excuse me, verse 17 Luke mentions that he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. So there's a huge, huge crowd listening to him. He turns to that crowd and he asks them this question. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, your master, your king, and you don't do what I tell you to do? Eugene Peterson, a beloved writer and pastor, recently uh, passed away. He, he says this, In all the history of human beings, Jesus is the most admired, the most worshipped, the most written about, and the least followed of all. Isn't that true? And so the least followed of all. So it makes you wonder, is Jesus kind of coming to the same conclusion? Because there's this temptation to go, Hey, I, I say, Lord, Lord, so I figure if I'm saying the right thing, then we're cool probably, like, and we're good to go. And Jesus is saying, wait a minute, if you say, Lord, Lord, then it follows that you would be living in a way that what we now call chapter six would be the way you're living, that you would be not judging other people for that which you're doing, that you would be loving your enemies and extending forgiveness to the unforgivable, that, that you would be living in these ways. I've forgotten who wrote this. I didn't come up with it. I wish I had, but I read where a man said, um, here are two words that can never be in the same sentence. No, Lord. If you're gonna say no, Lord, you gotta get rid of one of those words. If the answer's no, Lord's gotta go. If the answer's Lord, no's gotta go. All right, so Jesus is bringing them to this to say, this is not a no, Lord proposition. Saying you, you, you decide. So, Let's take a few minutes and, and take a look with this question. Knowing what we know as his disciples, knowing what they knew as his followers, the ones there were the followers, what is behind the failure to do what we're told? How do we operate in such a way that we, we say, Lord, Lord, and don't do what we're told to do? I want to I run two lies by you, two lies that are easy to buy. There are probably 2,000, but here, here are two of them. The first one, the first lie is that holiness is not possible. Now, holiness doesn't mean perfection, 
We're always going to be imperfect. Holiness means conformed, um, again, the Baker Dictionary, conformed in all things to the will of God. It is a work of gradual development. We call that the process of sanctification theologically. So holiness means I am growing in my gradual, gradual development of bearing the image of Christ, of growing and conforming to him. Matthew Kelly uh, wrote a great book on the subject. Let me read what he says about this. We think that holiness is possible for other people, our grandmothers or maybe some medieval saint, but not for us. This lie takes us out of the game and turns us into mere spectators in the epic story of Christianity. Takes us and turns us into mere spectators in the epic story of Christianity that continues to unfold in every generation it may be the devil's greatest triumph in modern history. This idea that holiness is impossible. Let me tell you, if we buy that lie, let me tell you what happens. If we buy that lie, we end up living in a refusal called resignation that is fueled by a thing called apathy. Apathy is one of those words that defines itself. The prefix a means without and pathos means passion, means without passion. And so if we buy the lie that being conformed in greater manner is to Christ is impossible, we end up on the sideline just kind of watching it all go by in apathy, without passion, without the pain of living for him and being his disciple and having to rely fully on him for our lives. So if we believe the first lie, that holiness is not possible, we then live in the second lie, which says, therefore, personal fulfillment is the chief goal of life. Holiness is impossible. I'm going to unplug. Therefore, my personal fulfillment is the chief goal of life. I go for just my own fulfillment. Now, I've been wanting to use this phrase in public for a long time. Here it is. Moralistic therapeutic deism. Take that this week and brag on me a little. Moralistic therapeutic deism. Let me tell you what that is. That's a phrase coined by two sociologists, Christian Smith and Melina Lundquist-Denton, they wrote a book in 2005, got the name Soul Searching, it's called. They interviewed thousands of adolescents and they asked them questions, uh, uh, adolescents who claimed to be Christians, they asked them questions about God, questions about living for him being his disciple. They came up with five points, we won't list those five points today, but they coined this phrase, moralistic therapeutic deism. Let me tell you what they said about it. In moralistic therapeutic deism, God is something like a combination divine butler and cosmic therapist. He is always on call. He takes care of any problems that arise. He professionally helps his people to feel better about themselves and does not become too personally involved in the process. How about that? He is a divine butler and a cosmic therapist. If we believe that holiness is impossible, therefore I get to unplug and just sit on the sidelines and not be in my own life as his follower. Therefore, the most important thing I could ever do is to reach personal fulfillment. If that's what happens, then God is relegated to being this moralistic therapeutic uh, uh, deity. Moralistic, just be nice. Just be nice to people and accept everything. Therapeutic, be sure by all means you're attending to your own personal happiness. And deism comes from this idea of, of well, it's very popular functionally now, but it was very popular as a belief system uh, back even in the turn of the, the, 18th, the uh, 19th to the 20th century. Deism is 
this idea that, well, God did all this. He created the world, created people, and then he just kind of went off and watched TV and, you know, read the Wall Street, did that kind of thing. He's really not paying attention now. He got it started. He's off doing other stuff. That's what deism believes. And so this idea, if personal fulfillment is my chief goal of life, I just kind of call him when I want him. He kind of does stuff for me. He makes me more comfortable. He helps me fulfill my personal goals. Then he goes away again so he doesn't bother me too much because I got stuff to do. All right, that's what moralistic the, the, therapeutic de, uh, deism says. So we buy those two lies. We end up, uh, first of all, creating our own islands. Holiness isn't possible. So I'm going to get my, on my apathy island over here. I'm going to be invulnerable to the world. I'm going to unplug and have my own island. Then the second lie says, and I get to be the king of said island. And so Jesus is coming against it and saying, as this sermon ends, he's saying, listen, you don't get your own island. They're all mine. And because they're mine, I'm the king. And your b uh, biggest goal is not your own fulfillment. Your goal is to follow me and be my disciple, to live in this upside down kingdom. So we don't get our own kingdom, our islands, and we don't get to be our own kings. And so the two, there are two claims. There are two claims, Lord, Lord, and uh, I'm my own king and don't have to be bothered with obedience. Those are the two claims. Let's turn our attention to two builders. The first one, verse 46, uh, sorry, 47. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. Pause there. Pay attention to what this builder does. He comes to Jesus. He hears Jesus' words and he does what Jesus says to do. Comes, hears, and does them. I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been built, or it had been well built. So this first guy, he comes, he hears, and he does. And this is not an idea of a guy digging for his salvation. It's a guy digging down to the foundation as a way of living. Maybe his story is underneath underneath that foundation. Maybe he's digging and getting into that story. He's digging into what the word says. He's digging into how scary it is to live in a world that's growing and growing in hostility uh, to being a disciple of Christ. But the digging has nothing to do with earning salvation, it has everything to do with what I do when I'm his disciple. Jesus is saying, this man dug down. Now, it's not that, it's not where they built, not where the builders built. It's what they did not, it's, it's what they did when they got to the building site. This first builder dug down and one writer put it this way. It's a paradigm shift. This man suggests a paradigm shift of from God, uh, man projecting upward to God versus God downward to man. The people that buy the lies are those who are projecting their own vision of, of God and themselves onto him. But this builder digging down to the foundation is projecting God's image on him, is allowing God to project his image on him. God calls the shots. And there's a second builder. Verse 49, this second builder bought the lies. Listen, the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. By the way, the, the word ruin is a violent word. The ruin of that house, the picture associated in the language, the picture uh, is of a badly broken bone with a laceration. How violent that is. 
And Jesus is saying, this is a violent deal. It didn't kind of topple with a few pieces of shingles. This thing got ravaged. This house fell. It's like the echo of a tree falling and the echo through the valley, the, the mountain valley below. Like you can't help but hear the cracking and the eventual falling and the thud hits the ground. With That's what Jesus is described. He's like, the, the fall is not soft. If we buy the lies and we say, no, Lord, the fall is not soft. The fall is loud. It's like a laceration and a compound fracture. It's nasty and it's violent. That's what the fall is like. And so this man buys the, buys the lies. He says, well, I'll tell you what I'm gonna do. Uh, it's probably not worth it. And what I'm gonna do is I'm just gonna throw a house down on top of the ground, no foundation. That's too hard to work. I'm unplugged. And if rains come, my divine butler, kind of my cosmic therapist is gonna come alongside and probably make it okay for me. So he bought both lies and the house lay in, in ruin. So Jesus has called, uh, given this, these are very uh, clear examples of two kinds of way of living. And he, as he begun saying, look at character, look at that treasury and that thing we call the heart, look at the treasury that this external speaker shows to the world and pay attention. So what he's done, he's, uh, he's really given us two diagnostic tests, two tests. One test is what fruit are you bearing? What does your fruit look like? Do you, are you made to be an apple tree and are you, are, are you bearing plums? Like, does, does what you're bearing not really match that? And where Jesus says, hey, those two need to match. One way or the other, Jesus says. One way or the other, they need to match. All right, is that, is that what life looks like? And the second one, how am I responding when the storms of life hit? Notice he didn't say, if eh, some distant galaxy, something kind of sort of bad happens. He doesn't say that at all. He says, when that storm comes. Now, I think we're probably, all of us have been around long enough to know when is accurate, right? <laughs> when the storms come, they're coming. We know what it's like to be in them. As a friend of mine says, we're either in a storm, we just got out of one, or we're walking toward another one. <laughs> right? That's how life works. Gee, Phil, with a gift of encouragement this morning. Thank you for, right? That's how it works, right? Because if we believe as followers of Christ that that this place is going to be redone one day. Jesus is coming to clean the mess up eternally. He's not here yet again. And so in the meantime, Romans 8 says, even creation groans waiting for Jesus to return. Our bodies groan waiting for Jesus to return. Chris moves my podium today because my body's groaning because it's getting older, right? So we, we, we go downhill uh, pretty quick. And Jesus says, I know that. It's all going to be redone. I'm doing all of it again making all things new. But until then, the storms are coming and they're coming and they're coming and they're coming. And Jesus is saying to them, you're going to be one type of builder and the kind of builder you are is going to, is going to depend on the foundation you lay or the foundation that you don't dig down to. So we can't help but notice uh, <clears throat> Jesus was not a big fan of winning people over with flattery. Notice he doesn't make it okay. That's where the sermon ends. The stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. And he just kind of lets the echo of the fall linger across the crowd. The next words we read after he finished this in the hearing, he entered Capernaum. So that was Jesus' great invitation <laughs> to say, okay, here's the deal. Here are the two ways of living, and here's what's going to happen with either way. And the, and, the, and the house falls violently, and the echo lingers. The echo's not lingering out of his 
uh, judgment of all and saying, you got to perform better, you got to perform better. The echo is lingering so you and I can take a long look at what is going on in the character, what's going on here under the hood from where, these, from where my life comes from. So I want to transition us into a, a, a so what using uh, something. Thankfully, uh, we have follow-up letters after the Gospels uh, that were penned to the churches. I want you to turn to the book of Colossians. So go to Philippians and make a right. That's where Colossians is located. Colossians chapter 3. Paul has this form he uses in most of his epistles to where he spends some chapters talking about doctrine and kind of building, ar- like an architect building the structure. And then he comes to a, to a breaking place or where we put, people put chapter breaks and says, okay, now this is how you live all of this out. So Paul has spent the first two chapters of Colossians introducing this idea that we are in Christ as opposed to Ephesians where he, he talks about Christ in us. Colossians is us in Christ. And so Paul is saying, you are with Christ. Let me give you some markers. Uh, turn to the, to the verse 17, kind of the end of this passage. Here's how Paul sum, summarizes this. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So the bottom line takeaway of chapter 3, everything we do, coming from our character, everything we do, do all for the glory of God. And then he starts that, what we call chapter three this way. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things on earth. Verse three, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So as a so what, as we too hear the lingering echo of the fall of the house that was built with no foundation, we do that. Move your eyes through chapter 3 of Colossians. Ask yourself these two questions, these two diagnostic questions. What kind of fruit am I bearing? And what is my response when the storms come? When storms come, what happens to my house? So Colossians 3 is not for us to go to as a litmus test to see if I'm good or if I'm bad. Colossians 3 is to go to to say, this is a a Paul writing about, this is what the life of a true disciple looks like. And so I want to challenge you this week, as you ponder those verses in the next minute or two, uh, this week, turn to this once a day. Take a look at this passage. Ask yourself those two questions. Then bring yourself before the Lord as as you meditate on those words and ask Him uh, as you are hidden in Him to show you what He would like you to know. So take a few minutes. Ask those two questions as you look through Colossians 3.